Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy, the host of Theana Money. A common misconception in economics today is that sellers get to just set the price wherever they want to, and we as consumers are stuck with whatever prices they set their goods and services at. This is often used to provoke frustration and sometimes even anger against sellers, probably in the name of the revolution. Now, in a state-controlled economy, this setting of prices and consumers just have to deal with it probably is the case for many goods and services, but not with the free market. In fact, those who complain about Sellers setting the prices of their goods and services too high often say that the government is the solution, so the government needs to get more involved in the market. But that actually usually has the opposite effect. They want us to get to the scenario I just mentioned, where because of the government, there actually are set prices. So in this episode, we will see why there are many reasons for sellers to cut the prices they charge for their goods and services without the government getting involved. Without the government getting involved. just wanted to emphasize that. Without the government getting involved, there are many reasons why sellers would cut prices, no matter what people who either don't understand economics or do and are lying to you like to say these days. And if we have enough time, we might even see how it hampers these price-cutting concepts when the government does get involved, which is the exact opposite of what many today would have us believe because they are statists who see the government as their savior instead of Jesus Christ as the savior and the government as his minister of the sword to execute wrath on wrongdoers. But before we jump into all that, I want to ask you all to subscribe to Theana Money on your favorite podcast catcher if you've not done so already. Also, please tell your friends about the podcast and follow Theana Money on social media. So why would sellers in a free market ever cut prices? Without the government setting price ceilings and other similar laws, these are laws that make it illegal to sell a product above a set price, or in the case of laws on scalping, from raising prices too quickly, especially when done in a time of crisis. Price ceilings, setting a certain maximum on prices. Price floors, setting a certain minimum on prices by the government. That's what those are. So without the government setting such caps on prices, why would any seller ever cut prices? Wouldn't he charge astronomical prices in order to maximize income? This is what those who see the sellers as evil, rich, bourgeoisie would have us to believe. But there are many reasons why they can't do so. Some moral reasons and others economic reasons. Notice I said why they can't do so, not why they won't. 
it isn't just that sellers won't set prices at whatever high level they want, but that they can't unless they don't want to stay in business very long. That is, as long as the government doesn't interfere with the free market. If the government interferes with the free market, maybe they can set prices whatever they want and stay in business uh, for however long they want to, but we'll briefly touch on that here in a little bit. Competition is a major reason why sellers can't charge more. Let's pretend I am a seller of pencils, just your stereotypical wooden, yellow-painted number two pencils. When other companies are selling their products in a box of one or two dozen for a dollar, I can't sell mine for a dollar per pencil. You can only sell your good or service for more than your competitors if you also offer some value he doesn't that makes yours worth the extra cost. If my pencils are nearly identical to my competitors and he sells a box of them for a dollar and I sell a single one for a dollar, then I will quickly go out of business. Let's mix up that story a bit. What if I am the only seller of pencils around? I'm the only person in the world who knows how to make a pencil. And yes, that was a reference to that video that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. If not Google, or better yet, DuckDuckGo, no one knows how to make a pencil. Maybe I can sell my pencils for a dollar each if I'm the only one who knows how to make pencils, therefore I'm the only seller of pencils. But it won't be long before someone realizes how much profit can be made in this field. So he starts making pencils and selling them in a pack of two for a dollar. So I have to respond by lowering my prices to keep some people still buying mine and not everyone buying his instead. But then a third guy comes around and he starts selling them in a pack of three or four for a dollar. And now myself and the second guy both have to lower our prices and maybe even find a way to make pencils cheaper and more efficiently in order to still have a decent margin of income on our sales in order to compete with the new guy. If our costs are too high, we can't sell our pencils as cheap as the third guy without selling at a loss. So we will either leave the market or figure out how to make our pencils cheap enough to still make a profit off of a competitive price. And that is one of the great things that God has put into the free market to make prices as cheap as possible by things such as competition. And even if no one entered the pencil market to compete with me and my exorbitant prices or say it took someone some time to do so, it was a while before someone entered the market to compete with me, that doesn't mean that I will make a lot of sales. Maybe at a dollar a pencil, people might still buy them if there were no other pencils for sale. But what if I sold my pencils at $10 per piece? Would people buy them? Very few would. Many others would just do without pencils. They might buy products that can, for the most part, accomplish the same task, such as pens, which are cheaper than my pencils are. Then I would be forced to lower my prices, even if no one entered the pencil market, because people will either go without pencils or substitute them with some similar product, say, pens or markers, or if they had to, maybe even something like crayons. So competition forces sellers to lower their prices. If a person selling a good or service wants to not lose all of his business to another guy, selling the same good or service cheaper, he will have to do something about it. 
he will have to either lower his prices or make his product better or try to have such a good marketing campaign that people believe his product is better when it actually is not. Although that last one can be very difficult in the internet age because people can see reviews online that say that the other guy's product is just as good and his cost half as much. Or maybe the seller could pay off politicians to enact some new legislation that makes it difficult for his competitors and potential future competitors to do business in the industry. That way he can keep his market share when his product and the prices on his product don't justify his market share. That is, he tries to uh, do, say, backroom deals to get unnecessary regulations passed to try to insulate him and his market. This is one way how government involvement can actually help prices stay higher by keeping competition lower than it would otherwise be. Now, some might respond by pointing out collusion. Collusion is when sellers in a particular industry have meetings behind closed doors to not compete with each other over prices in order that all parties involved may set their prices at a rate higher than the free market and competition would otherwise allow it to be. This does happen, but there are several things to keep in mind with it. One is that one of the parties involved might not agree to the conclusion because it goes against his conscience, either because he's a Christian or he is an unbeliever to whom God has granted a fair amount of common grace. Another is that unless these people also get the government involved by legislating regulations or other such laws, which is an issue in the United States because we are not a biblical free market, then they leave themselves open to a new competitor to enter the market with a lower price than all of the parties who partook in the collusion scheme and thus take away a large portion of the market share rather quickly. Those are some of the competition reasons for why businesses do not set their prices as high as they otherwise could. But there are other reasons why a business might want to lower its prices as well, with competition playing little to no role in this aspect of the price basis. One is when the product is about to go bad. If I sell milk and I have a few gallons of milk that are about to expire, then I won't make any money off of them if I have to throw them away. And in fact, I will lose money because I had to pay money to purchase them and then get them delivered and put on the shelf. So if I throw away that milk because it's about to go bad, then you're in a few days when it expires, I have to throw it away. Now I'm losing money on that milk that I had to throw away. And now you're saying, well, you still have a few days until the milk expires, so maybe someone will buy it before then. Yeah, sure, that might happen. But a lot of times people check the expiration dates on things before they buy them. I know I do quite often. If I look and I have the exact same product here, this one expires in three days. The other one expires in two weeks. And I'm not sure I'm going to use it all up in three days. I'm not going to expire the one that expires. I'm not going to buy the one that expires in a few days. I'm going to buy the one that expires in a couple weeks. And sure, some people might not look at the expiration date. They'll just grab the gallon of milk and walk away. I might still sell one or two of them, but there's no guarantee on that. So instead, maybe I as the seller 
to try to make sure I get rid of all of this milk before it expires, I put a sticker on all the gallon jugs about to go bad, and it says expiring soon, $1 off. And then maybe some people will become interested. They'll look at it and think, okay, that other gallon of milk that's at its normal price, it goes bad in a week or two, but this gallon of milk, it goes bad in three or four days, but it's a dollar off right now. I, I think I can use up that entire gallon before it goes bad. You know, maybe the person's a baker who uses a lot of milk. Maybe the person just has a lot of kids, a big family, and thinks he'll go through a gallon of milk in only a few days. Whatever the reason, that dollar off might be an incentive for the person to purchase that jug of milk that he otherwise would not have because it's expiring soon. And sure, I'm losing that dollar by giving the milk, by selling the milk at a dollar off, but I am losing less money than I would if I had to throw the gallon of milk away. Even if on that gallon of milk, I make less than a dollar profit, so I'm actually losing money by selling it at that sale price, I'm losing less money than if I just threw the entire gallon of milk away. And so for reasons like that, for a product that is about to go bad, and if it does expire, the seller has to take the entire thing as a loss and throw it away, you might put it at a discount. That way you can try to recoup some money off of it or at least take a loss, but a smaller loss than you would otherwise have if you just had to throw it away. On a side note to this point, the seller could donate the goods that are about to go bad to a local nonprofit, maybe a soup kitchen, which will use it all before it expires. And this way, the business can get a tax deduction from donating goods to a local charitable organization, and not to mention the good publicity from giving food away or doing something else to give away things to those in need. Another reason why sellers might be willing to reduce prices, even without the motive of competition, is that new products are about to start being sold. If I, later this year, decide to buy a new F-150, and I see that they have the 2023 models on the lot, but also some of the 2022 models still in stock, and they're the same price, I'm probably going to go for the 2023 model. Now, maybe I'm a very informed consumer, and I know that Ford tried something new with the 2023 F-150, and I want to wait a little bit, like maybe they did something new with the engine, and I'm not confident that this new thing they tried out in the new model is going to be great. I want to wait a couple years to see if they have any bugs to work out first. Okay, maybe in a situation like that, I'll buy the older one, even if they are the same price. But situations like that are pretty uncommon. How often does a car company do that? And when they do, how often is the buyer aware of it and concerned enough about it that it makes a difference in his purchase. So all things being equal, I'm going to buy the newer one if they're the same price or at least pretty close to the same. And this would mean that the Ford dealer wouldn't sell those 2022 F-150s because people would opt for the 2023 ones. And now they have that last handful or two of 2022 models still on the lot halfway into 23. And now you might be thinking, okay, but what if they sell out of the 23 models and people have to buy the 22 models? Well, one, a car, a car lot a dealer is not going to want to try to sell out of all of their models of a particular car like that. And even if they did, the person might just drive across town to the other Ford dealer or drive to the Chevy dealer across the road and get a 23 Silverado instead of a 23 F-150. So that doesn't work either. That's 
actually even worse for the dealer. And so they are not only not making money on those last dozen or so 2022 F-150s still on the lot as they're not selling, but those are also taking up inventory space because they're taking up parking space that a newer model could be sitting in. And that newer model could be selling faster. So now it's just taking up space again and again and again. And that's not to mention the insurance for all other vehicles and the potential for theft and things like that. So what is the Ford dealer to do? He will give deals on the 22 models when he knows that the 23 models are about to be sold. That way he can stock his inventory with the new ones instead of with the older model. When the 2023 models are on his lot, but he still has a handful or two of 2022 F-150s left, he'll probably offer even better deals to try to get rid of them and put newer ones in their parking spot. This is exactly what happened with my brother a few years ago. He bought a 2019 F-150 when the 2020 model was already out, and because of that, he got a great deal on his truck. My parents were really surprised about how little he paid for a brand new F-150 because he got a 19 when the 20 was already out and they were offering a lot of deals just to try to get rid of all their 19 ones. In fact, with the way vehicle prices are right now, that truck's probably worth a good amount more than what he paid for it. That truck now as a three-year-old used F-150 is probably worth at least as much if not more than what he paid for it. Another reason why sellers might reduce their prices is because sales can increase the number of goods or services sold, which can't more than make up for the lost profit per piece sold. If I sell a widget, which is basically just a business term to mean a product, any product, and I make $10 off the sale of each one, I might consider advertising a sale on them to drive up the quantity sold. So say I spend $20 having one of my employees make a sign and put it up in the end of the aisle that says they're on sale. So I just do this basic advertising here. We're not talking about higher costs with more complex formulas here of like trying to do big advertisements. We're just talking about something as simple as possible to help us see how this works. And so I spend $20 up front with having an employee put a sale at the end of the aisle saying, go down this aisle, such and such product is on sale for $5 off each one. So I normally make $10 off of it. Right now they're $5 off. So I'm making $5 off each one I sell. But then the sale does so well that I sell three times as many as I normally do. And so if I normally sell 100 and I make $10 off each, that's $1,000. If I normally sell 100 in a given month and I make $10 off each one, that's $1,000 a month on selling that. But if in that month it's on sale, I'm selling them for $5 profit each and I sell 300, then that's $1,500 in profit, which is more than I would have if it had not been on sale. Now, there are things to consider in that. Like that $20 initial cost, having the employee make and place the sign about the sale to advertise it. And if the item on sale might decline below the normal average amount sold the next month because some of those people who purchased it during the sale would have bought it anyways but bought it sooner because of the sale or maybe they just stocked up on it and now they won't need to buy a new one for a few months 
because of the sale or something like that. But you also have to balance in if someone might only have bought it because of the sale. They had never bought it before and if it hadn't been on sale, they probably still would not have. But now they like it so much that they decide they'll buy one again sometimes. And now how often sometimes is might depend on what type of good it is. Is it something that gets used up pretty quickly and then they need to buy a new one? Or is it something that lasts for months or even years? Am I selling hammers where someone buys a few different hammers in different sizes and then doesn't buy another hammer for years to come? Or am I selling sandpaper to someone who goes through quite a bit of sandpaper and they might be back to buy more pretty soon? All of these things go into a good business owner's decision when it comes to putting his products on sale. Sometimes it may even be beneficial for a seller to cut a price all the way down to zero, that is, to give it away for free. How will giving something away for free that costs you money end up making you money? There are a few ways it can't. You can give away a trial version of something for free, but the full version comes at a cost. Or you can do in-app purchases, but the app itself is free. Maybe you have a restaurant and you give someone free delivery on their first order, hoping they like the food so much they order it again and again and again in the future. Or if not, maybe you're just hoping that they will pick you over the restaurant down the road because the other one doesn't offer free delivery on the first order and you make more money on that sale of food than the offering free delivery costs you. So basically, you give something away for free to get attention to your business or that particular product and maybe people will get a paid whatever it is afterwards. One example is with Adobe software. You can download their Acrobat PDF reader for free, but if you want to edit the PDF or if you want to use any of their other software for audio editing or graphics editing or video editing and all the other different software they have, then you have to get a subscription to that software or to the full Adobe suite, and those can be quite pricey. Another example is free apps with in-app purchases. Maybe it's a free game, but it has in-app purchases. Maybe it's some sort of helpful software, but that software doesn't do much, and to unlock the full potential of the software, you have to pay a one-time or a monthly fee. Maybe the app has ads at the top and bottom of the screen and the creator makes money from those ads with or without in-app purchases and maybe he even offers ad-free for a certain rate. These are the sorts of things that people can do to make money off of giving something away for free. A friend of mine in high school at only 16 or 17 had several apps on the App Store and Google Play Store and he was making money off of ads and even the occasional in-app purchase. And at the time he explained a lot of it to me. So understand a little bit of how this works. My information is also a little bit dated now, so might not all be up to date, but understand a little bit about banner ads and how you can make a free game app or something and put banner ads on it and you're still making money off the ad even if they never do an in-app purchase just from the ads running at the top and or bottom of the screen. For an example, a decade ago, Angry Birds was super popular, and maybe it still is today. I don't know. Either way, the company made 
probably millions, if not tens of millions, with a game that was technically free because of people buying perks and other things inside the game. Related to apps with in-app purchases are free video games with in-game currency that has to be purchased with real money. Back in the day, people used to joke around that League of Legends is the most expensive free game ever because of how many purchases people made in the game after starting their free account. Back when I was in high school and then like a little bit into my early 20s, I used to play that game a lot and I occasionally would buy some of their in-game currency with real money to uh, get different things and stuff. So I know how they can make a lot of money off of stuff like that. So a game like League of Legends or Fortnite, which for the record I've never played a single game of, but sounds like it may have dethroned League of Legends for the title of the most expensive free game ever. Uh, or all of these free apps with in-app purchases or these video games that are free but there are in-game coins that have to be purchased with real money. Such as Pokemon Go, which was super popular in 2016 and even still today is pretty popular. They often probably make more money just off of ads and in-app purchases and things like that than if they had made the app have a fee from the outset by giving the app away for free and then having all of these other ways within the app for the seller to make money. They might actually make more money in the long run. So the creators develop a free game and let you play it all you want for free, but if you want to get some special perk or accelerate through the game faster, you can buy things with real money, buying coins in the game with real money in order to do that. And we are coming to the close of the episode here, but I did say near the beginning that I would mention how the government can make prices go up, not down, when they get involved. There are a lot of different ways the government does this, and at some point I want to do an episode focused solely upon that topic. But for now, I just want to say what I mentioned in passing in this episode. When the government interferes with the free market and turns capitalism into crony capitalism, or what some call capitalism for short, competition goes down. People already in the market try to get Congress or some other governing body to pass regulations and or legislation, usually in the name of safety for the consumer. Wow, a lot of things these days that are just horrible are supposedly done in the name of safety. Well, that's besides the point. That makes it more difficult for new consumers to enter the market. Then, with less competition, prices won't be as low as they would be with a free market and now prices remain higher rather than starting higher and dropping over time as competition increases. And like I said, there's a lot more that could be said there and I plan to do a whole episode on it, maybe even two in the future. But for now, I want to simply summarize this episode by saying that there are many reasons, some external and some internal, for why a seller might cut his prices with no interference from the government. Examples are competition or wanting to sell an item about to go bad at a discount rather than throw it away and lose the entire cost of it. 
I hope this episode was informative for you all, that you learned something from it, and that you learned so much that you decided to send a link of this episode over to one of your friends. Maybe two friends that you think would agree with it and one friend you think would disagree with it to see what they say. And hey, if you are that one friend that would disagree with this, they got a link to it, find Theana Money on social media and comment on one of the posts or PM me and tell me why you disagree and let's talk about it. Maybe I could even have you on the podcast at some point and talk about your disagreements and I'll bring scripture up and show why my economic principles are rooted in scripture or the good and necessary consequence of scripture, not merely in pragmatism, though mine do in the long term have the best outcomes. They actually are the most pragmatic positions, but that's not my starting point. That's just the ending point because this is God's world. So that was this week's episode of Theana Money. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. Oh, you said